0: Let's allow John 17 and the prayer we find there guide us in our prayer together right now. Let's, Let's pray together. Father, we come to you pleading for the same cause that Christ pled for 2,000 years ago in this moment of prayer that you have preserved for us in your word, we pray for your glory. We pray that God the Father, that you would be magnified this morning even as we gather. We pray that you would be glorified as the one who saves us. All are yours You picked us out of the world and you gave us to Christ. My salvation was totally your doing. You were the initiator and the pursuer of me when I had no interest in you. God, we pray that you would be glorified as the one who keeps us and guards us and protects us from the evil one in a hostile world, the very fact that I am still believing, that any of us are still believing, that we woke up this morning with any desire to join with the people of God, to praise you, all of that you're doing, we we want you to be glorified as the one who keeps us in the faith. Father, we ask that you would be glorified in this place as the one who fills us with joy. as you give us your word and we receive your word and are sanctified by your word. Your word is truth, O oh God, we pray. Sanctify us all the more by it this morning. Father, we pray, just as Jesus prayed, that the glory you have given us as your people may help us to be one just as you are one with Christ, just as Christ is one with us. God, I pray for the unity of this church and that you would use your word to stir up faithfulness to your word. I pray that you would use your word to create unity in this place. God, we love you and we thank you so much for what we find in John 17 and we pray that you would make it clear now, that you would help me to speak with clarity, precision, passion. And God, we pray that you would use this time and work a thousand miracles by the power of your word. We pray all this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles and you're not already there, let me invite you to open with me to John chapter Seventeen, John chapter 17. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, it, this is the my fourth sermon in the last three days and uh, I have woke up with not as much voice as I had yesterday uh, and a little bit of a cough so I'd appreciate the prayers and uh, if I cough during the sermon I, I pray no one like recluses back. You're not allowed to do that in the COVID days anymore colds don't exist anymore, so I, I ask that you would please pray uh, that, that I would be able to get through this sermon uh, without any sort of distraction. What's your name? My name is Brandon. Brandon Langley. Yes, ma'am. I love it. We need some audience participation from the beginning. That's a good start. Any more questions, just blurt them out. We'll address them. Love it. Uh, it, it, it is a remarkable thing that we turn to this morning. We turn to John chapter 17 which is an account of God the Son speaking to God the Father. In fact, one of the most remarkable things that Jesus says in this prayer is, is he prays to God the Father that he could return to the glory that he was enjoying with God the Father before the foundation of the world. So what we're seeing in John chapter 17 is a window into what was happening before there was anything created. We are seeing communion between God the Father and God the Son, through God the Spirit. So so what we're seeing in this moment, if you're in this room and you're wondering, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for our church? A fantastic place to start would be the moment in the Scriptures where we have God talking to God about what God wants. It's exactly what we find in John chapter 17. We've been studying this over the last couple days with the youth at the youth dean now, and we've seen Jesus pray to the Father for Himself. We've seen Jesus pray for his disciples that were following him at the time. But this morning, the text we turn to, Jesus clarifies that he's praying not just for his disciples who are following him in the flesh at the moment, but for everyone who would believe their word later. In other words, Jesus is praying for all who would believe in all generations, including you and including me. But he's not just praying for you as an individual. And he's not just praying for me as an individual. Rather, he's praying for you as part of a community. He's praying for you as you are connected to the people of God. In other words, he's praying for the future Of God's church he's praying for what our life together will look like in local churches so look with me at verse 20 and we're going to read verses 20 through 23 again together this is God's word Jesus says I do not ask for these only but also for those who believe in me who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I think the first thing that I I want you to notice in this prayer is Jesus' very clear assumption that those who will believe in him, those who will believe in him will, in fact, exist in real deep community-like relationship with other believers, I Jesus is assuming that the Christian life will be carried out in, an, in a way that interconnects people who believe in Jesus in these communities that the rest of the Bible and that we call churches. The church is a creation of God. In other words, it's, the church is God's idea. In fact, The very existence of this church and any church that that preaches the gospel, its very existence is a miracle of God. I mean, notice what Jesus says in verse 22. Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. Do, Do you hear that? Jesus says, The glory that I've given to them. We don't normally speak in terms of us receiving glory. That's sort of like a a strange thing to say. Surely this phrase is a little bit mysterious to us, but certainly it's a wonderful thing. God the Father apparently bestowed upon God the Son a kind of glory. And my best guess from the rest of the Gospel of John is that this glory that Jesus is referring to is the way in which God the Father and God the Son share in the glory of God the Spirit. Like God's glory fell on Mount Zion, the the, the Sinai, the the way God's glory fell on the tabernacle, the way God's glory fell on the temple, there's a sense in which Jesus' body, he tabernacled among us. The glory of God was present in Jesus. And so God the Son says, the way in which you have given me your glory, I give to them your glory. Here's Jesus saying that what this group of people who believe in me will be, they will be a people who receive the miraculous presence of the glory of God, which connects the Father to the Son and now connects us to him and us to one another. Jesus means to say that the church, therefore, is going to be something totally new, something totally other, by the power of the indwelling presence of the glory of God. God's people will be made intimately connected to God and to each other. So the church and the supernaturally accomplished unity between sinners who have differing but strong opinions. The church's unity actually reflects the glory of the triune God who has existed in harmonious, joyful relationship with himself from eternity past. This means the unity of the church is a big deal, a massive deal deal. Our oneness as God's people, our unity, is only made possible by the glory of the Spirit of God given to us when we believe in the person and work of Jesus. Our oneness, therefore, is a reflection of the glory and grandeur of our God. If you're a note-taker, It helps you to follow along. I encourage you to write this down. Truth number one, the unity of the church exists to glorify God. The unity of the church exists to glorify God. Ten years ago, I found myself frustrated with what I was experiencing in the local church. I was experiencing dysfunction on multiple levels. When I was a teenager, I was a part of a youth group where the youth pastor had left the faith. The pastor had sort of driven the church into great disunity because of a massive building project. My parents left the church. I found a new church. I I became the youth pastor of that church eventually. And it was a very traditional church, a very small country church. And I was watching people bicker and fight. It was one of those churches where the deacons were on the front porch smoking and kind of blowing in your face as you walked in, you know. Big big welcome. <laughs> and so I was the youth pastor in, in, in that kind of church. But then I was watching friends sort of get caught up in the big mega church scene. So here's my experience of church is like small Southern Baptist Church has got a committee for every flower on the stage, you know. But then I was watching my friends be drawn to 30,000 uh, member churches, or not member churches, attendee churches, where Highway to Hell was sang as the first song. They shot off fireworks. They barely talked to the Bible, and everybody went home being entertained. And, I, and I'm like, okay, well, well, my experience in this small country church doesn't seem to be what I'm seeing in the Bible, but, but their experience at the rock concert doesn't seem to be what I'm seeing In the Bible, I looked at both options before me, and and neither seemed right. Neither of them seemed very supernatural. You know, in the traditional church, the unifying factor was not supernatural, the unifying factor was cultural, traditional. (coughs) People gathered in the same place for worship because it was what they'd always done they gathered to worship with other people who were just like them people who liked the same music agreed on most everything about life and worship and politics etc etc their unity in the traditional church was very fragile i mean just introduce a change in the tradition and unity was thrown out of the window for the sake of silly preferences Just have a hard conversation with someone, confront someone's sin, accidentally sin against someone, and the unity would be so easily, so quickly fractured that the offended party would just pick up and find another church that sang the songs they liked. Now in the megachurch, however, unity again was not very supernatural, It formed around an entertaining speaker, an entertaining atmosphere, a a culture that the church created. Unity was based upon similar desires, similar stages of life. It was based on, on all the parties equally desiring to be consumers of what they found to be most entertaining. But take away the bells and whistles and introduce teaching that exposes sin and put people in a difficult conversation and you'd see just how fragile the unity was. Now, both options seem to place their own versions of culture and tradition at the center, and both options proved that culture and tradition were not very good anchors for the kind of supernatural oneness that Jesus prayed for. The angst in me over what I was experiencing in church caused me to go on a journey searching for what God has said about his church. In undergrad, when I met Luke, I was in this sort of angst of a season. I wrote my capstone paper uh, in Bible college about the dangers of the seeker-sensitive church movement and trying to figure out what a church was. I moved to New Orleans where I studied and thought about the local church for years, and I eventually had the opportunity to plant a church six years ago. So now the rubber meets the road, okay? Like, what does God say we must unite around to actually be a church? I'd been asked, uh, I was, I was, uh, I'd been asked to go preach at First Baptist Church of St. Rose, little St. Rose uh, community, 10 minutes west of the New Orleans airport, and I showed up to preach at this First Baptist Church of St. Rose, and I was just filling in for them, and I stood up to preach, and there were eight people in the congregation. I preached afterwards. They began to share with me how difficult a time they were having and some of their struggles and I I invited them to reach out to my church and to to reach out to us to see if there's a way that we could help you maybe. They did not. A year goes by. 2015, the summer, they asked me to come preach again and I show up to preach at First Baptist Church of St. Rose and there's four people in attendance. Two of them are on the back row. (laughs) In fact, I said, it seems kind of strange for me to preach at four of you, would you like to come forward and maybe we could sit down and have a Bible study? And they said, no, thank you. This is where we always sit. I mean, they were committed back row Baptist till the end, right? But that, that moment of preaching and that relationship I built with them led them to make a very bold move. They, they actually closed down the doors several weeks later and donated all that property to my church, First Baptist Church of Kenner. And First Baptist Church of Kenner said, well, what in the world do we do with this? And by God's grace, they asked me to take a small group of people to go start the church over in an old building. So that's what we did. I was 24 years old. Um, I was allowed to take a group of college students with me. uh, A married couple in their 20s, a married couple in their 60s, and one lady uh, who was 77 years old. That was our core planting, church planting team. So there was about 15 of us Obviously, very different perspectives, very different backgrounds of what is a church. and So we began to meet together uh, on Sunday morning. It's kind of like a little Sunday school class. And on that first meeting, what I did was I brought a table, a fold-up table into the middle of the room, and and I laid it out in front of the whole group because I recognize we're on way different ball fields when we talk about the local church. And I said, I want you to write down on these index cards everything that comes to your mind when you think the word church. So every object, every sort of memory, everything that comes to your mind when you think about what a church is. I want to put it on the table before the Lord. And I want to put the Bible on the table. And I want us as a group, though we've got people who are 20 years old and a lady who is 77 years old, we need to come together and to agree what the non-negotiables are. And so we're going to take everything we think about the local church and we're going to take those note cards and we're going to divide them into three piles. Pile number one, biblical. In other words, God says you must have this and do this in order to be a healthy church. Pile number one, biblical. Then we're going to put the other cards into the second pile, extra biblical. So this means you've experienced this in church, you think this when you think about the word church, but you cannot find this in the Bible. Now, these things are neutral. They're not bad things, but they're not necessarily necessary things, right? So let's put pews in there that you're sitting on, right? Not a bad thing, but extra biblical. They did not have the red cushiony pews in the first century. So that's good, fine, great. We should sit on things. Extra choirs, even concepts of different ministries, youth ministries, youth programs. Great, extra. And then we put the rest of the cards in the non-biblical pile. So these are the things that you think about when you think about the local church that you should not think about when you think about the local church. Gossip, slander, fill in the blank, racism, all types of things that you may have experienced in church, let's put that in the unbiblical pile. And this is what we did. We said, okay, here's the extra. Let's sweep away the extra. Here's the non-biblical. Let's sweep away the non-biblical. And let's start with what are the non-negotiables. And let's ask, are we missing anything? And let's add to that pile. Now, those early days have served us really well as a church. Because the 20-year-old in our church, and the I guess now she's 83 in our church, have such a beautiful relationship, such a beautiful united relationship about what they agree are the non-negotiables. I remember in those days searching the scriptures for what a church is and why a church exists and being struck by Jesus' prayer in John 17 that the unity of the church would somehow put on display the oneness of God with himself and with his people. I I remember particularly reading Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, and it's stopping me in my tracks. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul has just unfolded the glory of the gospel, right? The call to worship this morning, we heard the glories and the goodness of the grace that's lavished upon us. We see the the depths of our sin in Ephesians 2 and the heights of God's love for us in Ephesians 2. And then Ephesians 3, you see where it's all going. I mean, this is God's intention in saving you as an individual. It's to bring you into a church and listen to what God's plan is. Ephesians chapter 3, listen to Paul's words in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you hear that? The bigness of the purpose of you coming together as as Crabapple versus Baptist Church. The, the cosmos is meant to look at the kind of community that you are, and they're meant to marvel at the wisdom of God in bringing together sinners, very different from one another, around the same Savior. I mean, I used to think in my shallowness that the number one priority of the church was simply to grow bigger. I thought the number one priority of the church was just to reach more people. It didn't necessarily matter how you did it, as long as you were getting more people in the door. Church had always been, to me, simply a tool, an evangelistic machine designed to get more people, to attract more people. But this verse lifts your eyes to a much bigger purpose for the church. According to this text and according to John 17, the community of the church, the supernatural spirit accomplishes unity of sinners saved by grace and they exist for the purpose of glorifying God to the universe. The Milky Way galaxy puts on display the wonder of God's creativity. But in a more profound way, the relationships within the church put on display the manifold wisdom of God who does impossible things with sinners like you and me. This is what happens at salvation. You put faith in Jesus, and Jesus becomes the most fundamental and most important thing about you and your identity. And that fundamental life-changing truth allows you to unite with other sinners who are very different from you, but have the same Savior, F.B.C. Crabapple, you are meant to have relationships with one another that are only explainable by the Spirit of God at work in you. That's why you exist. The world should look at you and say there is no reason, like in my church, why 83-year-old Miss Millie Schinnevert should be going to breakfast with my 30-year-old wife and joyfully talking and laughing. They come from different planets, but they serve the same Jesus. This is what Jesus has prayed for you. John 17, The glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. The unity of the church exists to glorify God. But let's not leave it in mere generalities in what sense are we practically one with one another? In what sense does our oneness reflect Jesus' oneness with us? In other words, what does unity look like when you put flesh on it in real church life? It's, is it just that nobody throws things at business meetings, right? Is it just that, that you smile and shake hands at the door and exchange pleasantries on Sunday morning? Again, allow Paul's letter to the Ephesians to elaborate on what Jesus prays. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul offers the prayer, which we will end with in this morning's service. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, this is is Paul's prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. And you might expect that after Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, you're just going to have this epic call to urge the people to fulfill the Great Commission. You, you might expect for Paul to say, go plant a hundred churches, reach the unreached, in the most, the most uh, uh, hedonistic uh, languages and peoples in all the world. and You, you expect this big build-up after now to him who's able to do abundantly more than all you ask or think. God can do anything, any crazy miracle, right? You expect something big in Ephesians 4 verse 1 and this is what Paul says. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, oh man, I gotta walk in something worthy of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love eager to maintain unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body One spirit, just as you're called, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who's over all, through all, and in all. So you hear the connection? God's goal is the, the manifold wisdom of God being on display for the universe. I pray for God's glory through the church. God can do anything at all. Church, be humble and gentle and patient. And bear one another's burdens in love. In other words, church, embody Jesus to one another and to the watching world. That would be astounding. There's another text that was foundational for me as I was praying for the planting of St. Rose Community Church, and it can be found in Romans 15 again, it's at the end of the unfolding in Romans, you know, some of the most precious gospel doctrines in all the Bible. We preached through the book of Romans at our church. We did it in 98 sermons. It was glorious. At the end, my church presented me a plaque with like all of Romans on it. I don't know if it's because they were just thankful to be done or they appreciated the series, but Romans was just this masterpiece of the gospel that we waded through, but it's amazing that after all of that beautiful doctrine in Romans, this is the application in Romans 15. Romans 15.1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, For Christ didn't please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For what was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance, through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And then hear the prayer in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father, Of our lord jesus christ that's the point the gospel will save you so that you might be a created people to glorify god and what's it look like it looks a lot like the gospel you were saved by the jesus you were saved by truth number two if you're a note taker write this down the unity of the church makes the gospel visible It makes the gospel visible. I want you to zero in on Romans 15, verse 7. This verse should just rock your world. Listen to this. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, you read, welcome one another, and you think that you should, like, smile at people on Sunday, right, rather than frown and you pat yourself on the back, that you did a good job this Sunday. <laughs> but is that how Jesus welcomed you? Did he smile at you to allow you to go on doing your own thing while he did his own thing? No, how, how did Jesus welcome you? What, do you? what did the book of Romans teach about the way in which Jesus welcomed you well well he certainly welcomed you as a sinner, right? He welcomed you when you were still in your sin, Romans five. <clears throat> He's not surprised by your sin. In fact, your sins why he came In the first place, Jesus set his affections on you while you were still ungodly. He pursued you not because you were sinless, but because he loves you. Salvation is not a call to clean your life up first to prove your worth to Jesus. Salvation is a call to come to Jesus with all your mess and trust him to forgive you for it and deliver you from it. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus, so why do you have to clean yourself up to come to church? You don't have to earn Jesus' love, so why does it feel like you have to earn someone's love at church. Christ welcomes you with grace that abounds. He doesn't just welcome you as a sinner. He he welcomes you with undeserved favor and forgiveness. His grace for you abounds more and more over the severity of your sin. His grace forgives you always and infinitely more than your capacity to sin. And Christ did it through his own sacrifice, didn't he? Not only has he welcomed you, not only has he shown grace, he did it through sacrificing himself. He welcomes you through giving his own life for you. He welcomes you into a relationship where there is certainty and sureness, right? Nothing can separate you from the love that is in Christ Jesus. No doubt we could keep going, but let's just pause there and assess from some of the things we learn in Romans Jesus welcomes you as a sinner by his grace through his sacrifice as a fellow sufferer who walks with you in hardship with love that's eternally certain, unchangeable by your circumstance. He welcomes you as a part of the family as you're adopted into uh, uh, the family of God the Father. And now let's read verse seven again. (coughs) Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What would it look like if the members of Crabapple welcomed one another in the same way that Jesus welcomed you. In a way that didn't force other people to earn your affection. But in a way that looks past their grievances and draws near to them even when they are sinning against you or differing from you. That's God's design for his church. So it means to be the body of of Christ, we welcome one another as sinners. We forgive as Christ forgave. Love as Christ loved. Showed grace as Christ showed grace. We walk with those who suffer. We love with a love that is not so easily shaken. And in this way, we actually experience the presence of Christ. I mean, do you see that, 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 that when you come to faith, you get the spirit of Christ inside of you and you join other people who have the spirit of Christ inside of them. And you know what that means? When you sin against somebody else in your church... And they have the Spirit of Christ in them. And they respond by offering you forgiveness and embracing you despite your wrong against them. Do you know what you feel in that embrace? The embrace of Christ. Do you know what you experience? The same kind of forgiveness that Christ has given you when you've sinned against Him. Do you see see how how you experience the fullness of Jesus? Jesus is one with His church. His spirit is in his church. Christian community is a community of people who've been welcomed by Christ and are indwelt by Christ. And this is God's plan for our good. Ray Ortland, in his book on the gospel, writes A gospel defined church is a prophetic sign, it points beyond itself. It's a model home of a new neighborhood Christ is building for eternity. People can walk into this kind of church right now to see human beauty that will last forever. Such a church makes heavens real to people on earth so that they can put their faith in Christ now while they still have a chance. The unity of the church exists to glorify God. The unity of the church makes the gospel visible. And truth number three, The unity of the church causes the world to believe. I didn't make that up, that truth. That's exactly what Jesus prays in John 17. Look back at the text again and notice the so that's in the text. John 17, 21. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now there's, there's a lot of talk, a lot of talk in Southern Baptist circles, about decreasing baptism numbers. Anybody heard it? Anybody heard it? That talk. And the talk normally goes something like this. Baptism numbers are down because our churches are not evangelizing. Therefore, lack of evangelism is our primary problem, and pushing people to do more evangelism is our primary solution. So let's do another training on evangelism. That will solve our baptism problems and I would like to say that I think this is a misdiagnosis in fact I don't think lack of evangelism is necessarily the primary problem it's a problem but I think it's a symptom in fact I might even say that southern baptist evangelistic tactics which tried to get as many people saved as fast as possible while ignoring a lot of what the bible said actually filled our churches with lost people and lost people don't evangelize but that's another sermon for another day. What I'd like to focus on is the fact that Jesus assumed that our gospel proclamation would be confirmed and meaningfully aided by our gospel communities of faith. In other words, when unbelieving people would hear the gospel, they would actually then experience something very supernatural about the relational unity in the church. And the church is relationships would confirm the church's message. And they couldn't deny what they were both hearing through preaching and seeing through communal community life. Jesus literally prays to this end that our unexplainable closeness to one another, grounded in our common oneness with Jesus, would actually be the convincing power Needed to believe that Jesus really is God the Son sent from the Father to save and transform people. Perhaps baptism numbers are down not because we failed to proclaim the gospel message verbally but because our churches have failed to embody the gospel message in our communities. By the way, we love one another. By the way, we settle disagreements. By the way, we forgive one another by the way we lay down our own preferences for the good of the church as a whole. Many people are against Christianity not because they haven't heard the gospel, but because they have been to church. May it not be so in this place, in this church. May your oneness with Jesus be so primary in your life that it unites you in a remarkable way to other sweet brothers and sisters in this congregation. May your oneness be so supernatural the world looks at this church and, and cannot explain it. It's not just a group of people that look like one another and shuffle in on Sunday mornings to their designated Sunday school classes separated out to more people that look more like one another, to then smile and wave and go home. There's not much supernatural about that. Unity in the church, supernatural unity, causes the world to believe. And this is why disunity and divisiveness is such a big deal in the Bible. And do you, do you hear Paul's words to Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse 10? As for the person who stirs up division, after warning them once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped, sinful, and self-condemned. Why does he take this so seriously? Because Paul knew what Jesus knew and what we should know, that the unity of the church exists to glorify God. It exists to make the gospel visible. It exists to cause the world to believe. Divisiveness is not just a a one sin among many. It's a sin that contradicts the eternal goal of God in the universe. This morning, we're gonna proclaim that gospel together through an ordinance that God gifted to the church to confirm the message that I have just preached We're going to partake in the Lord's Supper together, and contrary to popular belief, the Lord's Supper is not an individualistic ceremonial act between just you and God, where you get into a corner with the lights turned low and you partake. Rather, the New Testament portrays the Lord's Supper as a meal to be shared around the same table. God, in his infinite wisdom, gave the church a visible, physical expression of what the church should be every time they take the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we together remember what Jesus has done for us. We reflect on our own sins that nailed Jesus to the tree. We lament and repent of the ways we fall short. We remind ourselves that though our sin nailed him to the tree, our sin is now forgiven because he was nailed to the tree. When we break the bread, we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us. When we when we pour the cup, we remember Jesus' blood was poured out for us. As we eat and drink, we're reminded that we have been made one with him. He is in us and we are in him and we are connected to him, and it's only made possible through the cross. But in the Lord's Supper, as we remember we've been reconciled to God, we look up, but we also look around at the other people who've been reconciled to God by the same body and the same blood. We share the same table with the same bread, with the same cup, just as Jesus reconciled me to God the Father, Jesus reconciled me to my new brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The Lord's Supper is God's gift to you as a church as a reminder. You know, the thing that really unifies us isn't the songs we sing, isn't the pews we sit on, isn't the clothes we wear or the color of our skin, it's not our age, it's not the, the name of this church, it's what's symbolized in the, the bread and the cup we eat and drink together. That's the source of our unity. That's the supernatural source of our unity. As we close this, this morning, before you partake in the supper, I, I want you to ask yourself a few questions. Paul urges us to examine ourselves before partaking in the symbolic act of purity, of unity. Question One is this, is is my relationship with Jesus and my unity with him the most important source of my identity and purpose? Is my relationship with Jesus and my unity with him the most important source of my identity and purpose in life? Question number two, is there something that I have let jeopardize my unity with this church or with someone in this church? Perhaps it's a preference you have. Perhaps it's a decision made by someone. Perhaps you've sinned against someone or been sinned against and the gospel has not been made visible through your response. Perhaps it's an annoying person you just struggle to love. Is there something jeopardizing your eagerness to maintain the unity that Jesus prays for? Question number three. Is there anything supernatural about the way I relate to other church members? Does my closeness with my fellow church members make the gospel visible? Is there anything supernatural about the friendships you have in this church? Are there people that will love you enough to have hard conversations with you? Does anyone have a license to confront you on your blind spots and sins? Do you have the license to confront anyone else? So that at the end of that hard conversation, God is glorified as you are unified even in the midst of that relational difficulty. Or is your tendency just to pick up and leave when the going gets Tough. Reflect this morning before you partake of the supper, which is supposed to symbolize the supernaturalness of your unity to one another. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and, and you just sat for the last like 43 minutes wondering what in the world this crazy guy is talking about, in a moment we're going to partake of the Lord's supper and One of the things that the Lord's Supper is supposed to do in this moment, it's supposed to be a dividing line. This supper is only for those who have put faith in Jesus. It's supposed to make you decide in that moment, am I one of them or am I not one of them? And if you are not one of us because you've not put faith in Jesus, we ask that you you not partake in this, but that you do what you're supposed to do in this moment, and that's reflect on where you stand with the one true living God. I've got good news for you. You can become one of us. (laughs) We didn't earn our way into this thing. We didn't have to try out for the team. We trusted King Jesus. To do for us what we could not do, to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve to die, and the one who rose again to give me eternal life I never could have earned it. So we urge you to do that this morning. When you're confronted with whether you're one of us or not. So let's, let's pray, reflect, and repent before our Lord as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Father, we pray what Christ has prayed, that we may be one, just as you, Father, were in the Son and the Son was in you, that we we may be in you. This is the world may believe that you have sent Christ. The glory that you gave to Christ, you've given to us that that we may be one even as you are one. You in us. Us in you that we may be perfectly one. We pray that the world may know that you sent Christ and have loved us. Father, we pray, may these scriptures become a reality in the community life of this church. In Jesus' name, amen.